Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from the Ask Noah Show studio. The Ask Noah Show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Evans. Welcome in, sir. I am feeling spicy tonight, sir. I don't know about you. It's It's been kind of a week, Steve. So tell me, what makes you spicy? Well, I guess it's just a confluence of, of you know, there's some politics going on back up in Canada that, that are really hard for me to wrap my brain around and then having to, to deal with some stuff at work. And it's just been... It's just been a day, you know, just just not achieving like I want to in the personal realm and having some setbacks at, at at work or some tough stuff at work and, you know, some worry about what's happening back home. And uh, that all just kind of mixes together to, to get me all fired up, I guess. Well, I'm sorry to hear about what's going on at, at home because that, that is a rough situation. And I'm sorry that you're having a hard time at work, but I think I might have the answer for you, Steve. Oh, yeah? What's that? Linux, open source, answering people's questions, serving the community. It will fill you with a level of peace and satisfaction that you just can't get anywhere else. You know, I think that just comes from listening to your voice, sir. (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but all right. Well, here, here's some of my voice. My first voice comes from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good day. Feedback for Steve and the show in the USA, February 15th. We need to turn off the PowerPoints in the 80s and 90s. We didn't use AC connected items. Is it really a good idea to centralize everything to the AC grid? Shouldn't we be looking into backup or off-grid solutions? Things like direct solar, tur- uh, wind turbines, rocket stove, gas, uh, ethanol cooking oil, hand tools, and compressed air. Any recommendations for power socket monitoring that isn't smart but works on serial LAN instead of Bluetooth, wireless, and Wi-Fi without a control device, without internet, cloud, or smart servers and doesn't need a mobile app, instead can be accessed via Telnet SSH HTTPS on the device. So I guess before we get into his switch stuff, let, let's talk a little bit about the self-reliance. I, you know, I can relate, Steve, to his concerns about all of this stuff being smart. I bought a metronome watch. All the thing does is it just counts time. It counts 16th notes. And the stupid thing needed, not wanted, needed location access before I could activate it. What do you need location access for? You're a thing that counts 16th notes. That that sort of stuff drives me crazy. Oh, I was so mad. Drives me crazy. So, what do you think the uh, what do you think are our realistic options? First of all, let me ask you this big picture. I mean, you've done a lot of 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 research and thought into what power consumption, uh, what what power draws you have inside of your house. Is it realistic to be self sufficient with power in 2022? I think it can be. But we're talking about like upper middle class or um, extreme uh, vigilance in terms of the, your power consumption. So there, there you you can get there by either one really constricting your power usage because you know you can you can get some solar panels, um, three hundred seventy watt solar panels. You get three or four of them, and you're generating you know one and a half two kilowatts. Uh, and if you kind of constrict yourself 
to that, like you confine yourself into that, that little bucket, you could do it. And that probably would cost you, you know, like I'm not an installer, but based on the quotes that I'm getting, I'd, I'd say somewhere in the $3,000 range. I mean, that's out of reach for someone who's really struggling, but we're talking, if you're somewhere in the middle class, it might be doable. Then you'd have to have a battery bank of sorts to store the power when the sun isn't shining or where you get those cloudy days. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a bunch of ways to handle this. Like, I I do not recommend this. I do not recommend this. I don't recommend this. But you can go and get car batteries. I have absolutely Wait, you're recommending seen, car batteries? I have absolutely pe- seen people, because the solar panels take in DC, you can charge your car batteries with with this and you can do a fairly cheap battery backup by kind of chaining your car batteries together. Don't do that. <laughs> Why do you say don't do that? Why is that dangerous? Uh, well, there's other than the fact that if you do that poorly, uh, you could actually electrocute yourself with all the voltage that's running through there. Batteries aren't meant to be just kind of sitting out in the open. So you've got cooling concerns. You've got, concerns about someone walking up and just touching them. There, there's a lot of things that you need to be um, cognizant of if you're going to go and store power with car batteries, right? Because it's not something that they were they were meant to do outside of the car. So it's, you need to be knowledgeable and you need to make sure that these, these are secure and, and um, well cared for. Because if, you've, if you get to a situation where the cells in the battery are expanding because of the heat, you're, you could have all kinds of problems. So, Kaplumi. Yeah. Charlie starts asking about recommendation for switches. So he has a couple of links to the Australian version of eBay. He look, links to the Cisco WSC 2960S, the HP 2510 24-port, and the Dell 52-24. Um... So, uh, what am I missing? Sorry. So he, he, I just was, uh, thinking that he asked specifically about power monitoring, um, without, you know, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, et cetera. Um, and that isn't smart. I do have some suggestions there. You're not going to get away without Wi-Fi most likely, but that doesn't mean that there's an app or anything like that. It just means you're going to have to access these devices somehow. So the most, DIY way that you can get there's something called a CT clamp and what these do is they go around the hot wire of any one of your connections and you can get um, they're, they're little breakout boards they're about 60 bucks in, in the US here about 80 in Canada um, and put an ESP32 chip on them and what they do is they basically read they're able to calculate the power going through the hot wire that the CT clamp is connected to and that will actually give you uh, smart power monitoring without going out to the web. And because you're putting it on this little ESP32, you know, you can use Tasmoda or ESP Home or all of these sort of things, and you can access those over HTTP. Um, there are some other alternatives that are more commercial if you're not DIY, where um, they specifically are meant to do a similar thing, but they only talk to their little readout. So it is some wireless protocol, but it doesn't go out over the internet or anything like that. It still uses CT clamps, but the base talks to like a little readout that kind of rotates through the different circuits that it's monitoring and kind of flips through them to let you know. So that's what I'm aware of for um, socket monitoring. Be very careful with this if you are not comfortable with electricity. 
because again, this involves putting a clamp. It's non-destructive, but it still involves putting a clamp around the hot wire. So you're not comfortable with this. Socket monitoring is might not be the thing for you, um, but you could also get, I'm going to plug my friends over at cloudfree.shop again. They do have those little plugs I've talked about before where um, they go into the socket that's for US. There's, um, there's a British um, sister site that does something similar for the different sockets on that side of the pond. But you basically plug them in and they're already running Tasmoda open source. Again, they give a website, but it doesn't mean it doesn't go out to the Internet. It's just a local HTTP server. So that's what I know of for kind of doing um, smart monitoring on sockets. Network, but local. That seems to be the best way to go because you're taking advantage of all of the conveniences of modern IP connectivity, but you're not doing any of the cloud stuff. like yeah. that the best. So he asks about switches. He links to three, the Cisco WSC2960S. He links to the HP 2510 24 port, and he links to the Dell 52, uh, 5224. So a couple of things there. I think, Steve, you said you didn't have a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts or experience with these switches. Not really. I, you and I kind of chatted beforehand SFPs have never been a big draw to me because while they're cheap to get the switches, then you have to get the cards and then you have to get the modules and then you have to get the wires. And that just seemed like too much hassle for me. Yeah. Yeah. There is, there is some extra hassle and there's some, some extra cost there, but I'll start with the switch. I know the best. Um, so the HP pro curve series, I've never used the 2510 G specifically, but it is part of the, it, it's part of the, the 2000 series of switches. So it's very similar um, to the 1910s, 1920s, uh, and love these switches. This is kind of my go-to when I'm looking for a, a switch for something. Um, the 1920 is still technically a current model, but uh, they, they're hard to source. And so most places have moved to the 1950, which is the newest generation of them. Um, 1910, uh, 2510, though, 1910, 1920, all these switches uh, still have a modern HTML web interface so they're not using the old uh, java thing which was the case with the the old 3com ones um so you're able to log in use the web interface the other thing i particularly like about hp switches is their console access when you ssh into them gives you essentially like a menu system so when you ssh into like a cisco switch you are dropped into a command line you have to know cisco ios in order to do any of the configuration and it's not terribly difficult to look up and it's not terribly difficult to learn but you have to know when you SSH into the HP switch, it'll tell you, you know, press 1 to configure interfaces, press 2 to configure VLANs, press 3 to set the IP address, press 4 to see a system summary. So even if you didn't know what you were doing, you can kind of do a menu-driven thing. So I really like that, like the web interface, like the fact that it has a built-in console port, which the 1800 series doesn't. Um, so really like the HP 2510, and at a price of 79 bucks, that's a pretty good deal. Um, the Cisco, I see these all over the place. So I believe that they're probably a decent switch. Um, I, we have, I've only, the only one I have any significant time on is we've got one at the radio station, but it doesn't do our office network. It only does the audio over IP side. So I've configured some VLANs on it and that's really about the extent of my experience. If you're asking me which one was a better switch, the Cisco is probably a better switch than the HP, but the HP will be easier to get started on. And Dell switches, everybody that I've talked to that has Dell switches absolutely loves them. I haven't spent any time on a Dell switch. Um, and the one time that I came across one in the field, 
I it did some weird stuff that I thought was kind of strange. So one of the things, and Steve, you have to tell me what you think about on this. When you plug a Dell switch in, it tags all of the VLANs on all of the ports and all the time. Like without, just out of the box, you plug a trunk cable into it, it will tag every VLAN and send it to every other port. Why? I don't know. But it, you know, the first time I went, I was like, that's weird. Never seen that before. And then I started thinking of all the implications of every port having every VLAN exposed by default. And I thought, yeah, I'm not sure I care for that. But it's their good switches. And there's people that really, really like them. And I know a couple of places that have switched from HP and Cisco over to Dell. So take that for what it's worth. Um, can you, so his specific questions, he says, can I use serial or telnet to SSH into HP or Dell? So serial you can console into all three of those switches, which is what you're asking when you say, can you serial in? There's a console port on the front, and if you connect that to a serial port and plug it into your laptop and use something like Minicom, you'll absolutely be able to console into all three of those switches. Um, is it plain HTTP uh, on the web interface? You On the HP, for sure, you can do HTTPS or HTTP. I don't think the Cisco even has a web interface. I don't know anything about the Dell. Um, can I trunk to combine ports on the Dell or HP into a server with a 4-gig NIC to create a 4-1-gig link? Yes, you can. Um, but like Steve said, you're going to have to buy the SFP modules. So if you're doing fiber, you'll have to buy fiber SFP modules. And if you're doing something like TwinX, then you'll have to buy uh, the modules for that. And they're not all interchangeable. So, you know, the, the SFP modules that you'd buy for the HP switches would be different from the ones that you buy from the Cisco. And even within a brand they make different uh, modules, so you'll want to be aware of that. If you guys have any experience with Dell or HPs in these models, uh, what's the general feedback? The higher price Cisco. Cisco, you're essentially paying for a name, although I will tell you, when I was working at the radio station, they one of the things that they did was they sent all the switches into a lab to get tested, and the only switch that lived up to its published white paper specifications was a Cisco one. Every other switch, to include HP, uh, which we use, uh, did not live up to what they publish uh, their specs on the white, white paper. So if you're looking, if you need every last bit of throughput, uh, I would probably, I'd probably go with the, the Cisco. And uh, finally, it says Canadian NAS server. Uh, could you also get a secondhand HP Micro or an Optiplex with an external drive bay uh, for a for an outboard NAS? So I'm I've looked at the HP Micro server a bajillion times and have always thought that would make a killer. F- True NAS box, but I've never actually dug into it. Steve, what would you do if you were looking to to build a a, a little True NAS box? Yeah, I I've already made my route. I'd go a mini ITX board. I just uh, I'm not a big fan of the mm, appliance like thing. I just there's just something about that 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 just doesn't sit with the way that I I do things. So this is in regards to the user that had written in last week or the week before mm-hmm. um, asking about stuff for doing uh, for getting NAS on the cheap our second email comes in from Russ Russ writes in and says hi no one friends I have finally gotten my immediate family onto matrix I found this was not as difficult as I expected it to be since I was able to create everyone an account using synapse admin so they all they needed to do was download element and log in via the credentials I provided them I was wondering if you had any suggested tips for new home server owners, such as integration or bots that might be useful for family or more casual conversations. Anything fun would be apply here. I've actually been using this home server for myself for about half of a year, 
But now that I actually have people in the home server instance, I'd just like to potentially be able to show them some cool, interesting things about the world of Matrix as the technical details will go way over their heads. Thanks in advance. So, um, I, I, you know, I don't know of anything off the top of my head. I can't think of anything fun. Um, there's a lot of bots that are out there. So I might suggest you start with the, the our, our Merlin show bot um, because it's a very generic easy thing to set up. Um, you essentially can tell it to watch for specific keywords and then take actions based off of those uh, those keywords. So you might say like, uh, I'm just, and I'm just spitballing here, um, when you say dinner or, or pound dinner, it sends a message to everyone. The bot goes out and sends a message to everyone, says dinner's ready, come to the kitchen or something like that. I can think of some fun ways that you could, that you could tie that in. Um, but I'll, I'll do some thinking on that. Off the top of my head, I would say that... Um, yeah, I'm glad that you're you're on the Matrix infrastructure. I think that's really cool, but I don't have any specific fun things that I do or have done with uh, with the family. It has been nice to have a single point of contact uh, for our family. Everybody's kind of been in one place. So I've enjoyed that aspect of it, but truthfully, you could do that on any messaging platform. Our third email comes in from Brad. Brad writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I recently purchased an iX System Mini X running TrueNAS Core to replace my old aging QNAP. As the QNAP still has some, not sure how much, life left in it, I decided to replace the terrible QNAP OS with their most current beta of TrueNAS Scale. So let me stop right there. Is he saying that he's installed TrueNAS Scale on the QNAP? I mean, that kind of sounds like how it's reading. I would like to leverage the QNAP as my local backup destination for the data on the Mini X. I'm interested in what the two of you would recommend for TrueNAS or TrueNAS Backup Solution. As an aside, most of the data I'm interested in backing up here are music and movies, backups of my DVD collection, recorded TV shows from my Plex library. I've not found a cost-effective online solution when it comes to storing multiple terabytes of data, but at the same time, I don't want to have to spend hundreds of hours that it took originally to rip my CD-DVD collection either. Thanks for all you do and what you give to the community, Brad. Um, so I'll, 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 I'll go off the assumption that he isn't running TrueNAS on the QNAP because I didn't know that was possible. And then you take the question as if he's running TrueNAS off the QNAP. So let's say it's, let's say the QNAP still has to run its old software. And I'm misreading that or misunderstanding that. In that scenario, what I would do is I'd export an NFS share on the QNAP and I would have either export the NFS share on the TrueNAS as well and have like a task runner PC or task runner VM or something like that uh, kick off a script to sync those two directories together. Alternatively, you could run that script on one or the other machine. The nice thing about running it on a third machine is you can monitor to make sure that both of those NFS shares are mounted. And if anything ever goes offline, you then that then that third party running machine can send you information on, hey, I couldn't access this machine, so your backup isn't working. You should go fix that. And if you don't get anything from that machine, then maybe the third one's down. Um, if you're using, if you're actually able to get TrueNAS on the QNAP, which uh, which is news to me, if you're able to do that, Steve, what's the best way to get true TrueNAS boxes to talk to each other? Well, assuming they're using ZFS, which is uh, probably a fairly safe assumption, using the ZFS send um, hopefully you've got enough space for your data set in both places. As for the uh, cost-effective online solution, I don't think that there is one unless you're talking about like Glacier or something like that. And even if there is, if you've got terabytes of stuff, I hope you got a good internet connection because uh, that's going to take you a long time to upload, even if there is a, a quote-unquote reasonable price out there. Can you spell denial of service? Yeah, no kidding. 
Our fourth email comes in from Andy. Andy writes in and says, good morning, Noah and Steve. It's not morning. It's not morning, Andy. But it probably was for you. I wrote in last week about my smart switch and using the Lutron Castro line of smart devices. First, I want to thank you for addressing my email. It's always nice to be heard. And if I can help anyone listening with their smart home projects, I'm glad to be of assistance. I do agree with Steve that the Z-Wave protocol is more desirable, as there's absolutely no internet calls with the Z-Wave natively, and the Z-Wave works just as well. I do use Z-Wave devices in my home, and I think they're great. Where the difference lies is in the physical wiring of the switch, not in the communications protocol. The circuits that feed the dimmer switches in my home do not have a neutral wire. The neutral wire exists in the light switches, but when my house was wired back in the 70s, they only brought hot and ground wires to the switch box. The dimmer switches in the Lustron Castra switch series do not require a neutral switch for installation. Unfortunately, I've only been able to find Z-Wave dimmers that do require a neutral wire. This makes Z-Wave devices unusable in my case. Additionally, the caster system has what they call the Pico remotes, and essentially these are small little remotes that you can sticky onto the wall and put a faceplate on. It looks just like a light switch, but allows you to control the load remotely. This has worked out great, and I would recommend it to anyone who's in the same situation. Thanks for all the feedback. I hope my response helps. Andy. I think uh, just a tiny little aside here. So you were saying Z-Wave, and I read it as Z-Wave because, you know, 40 years of being in Canada – I was uh, I was talking with a, an American today, and I was trying I was spelling something to him, mm-hmm. and I'm watching his screen, and I said Z, and he typed Z he typed Z E D, and I was like No no Z just the letter Z, and he had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> Z isn't a letter. It's a, that's so in the ham radio world we use Z a lot, right? And so I I I use the two interchangeably. The other thing I do is I'll slash my zeros. That confuses people. <laughs> Well, that's actually what you're supposed to do. I think it separates it from a no. Tiny asks via Merlin, our question bot, you can message questions, colon, linuxdelta.com. Do you have an open source solution that will let you cast YouTube videos to a TV? I love being able to queue videos and controlling them from my phone, but I do not like using the non-free software that is used by Roku and other set-top boxes. Thanks for the great content. Hmm. Steve, any thoughts? Yeah, I was just thinking about that. What could you do? The only thing that I know um, most people use is is like the Chromecast, which yeah. is definitely not free software. So Sleuth in the chat room recommends RPI Cast, screencasting software solution using the Raspberry Pi. So we'll have a link to the GitHub repository uh, in the show notes, but you might check out RPI Cast. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. Elastic has announced that it has settled a two-year trademark lawsuit filed against Amazon's cloud unit. AWS has agreed to stop using the name Elasticsearch in its product or service names. Other terms of the settlement have not been disclosed. R2C, a startup founded by MIT alumni, is seeking to make secure software a more seamless experience with an open-source tool for proofreading code. In the same way that Grammarly finds grammatical errors or opportunities for improvement in essays and emails, R2C's tool, called SEMGREP, parses lines of code to check for thousands of potential bugs and vulnerabilities. The CHIPS Alliance, the leading consortium advancing common and open-source hardware for interfaces, processors, and systems, today has established the FOSS Flow for FPGA Workgroup to drive open-source tooling, IP, and research efforts for FPGAs. The Software Freedom Conservancy has launched legal proceedings against a U.S.-based television manufacturer, Vizio, for failing to provide consumers with the source code for the software used in the Vizio smart televisions. 
A remote stack overflow in the Linux kernel was found by AppGate senior exploit developer Samuel Page while he was poking around at a prior Linux heap overflow security bug from November 2021. Neil McGovern, the executive director of the GNOME Foundation, has resigned, but is going to continue in his position for six months to allow the board to find the best replacement and to aid in a smooth transition. Akamai, one of the world's largest CDNs, has acquired Linode for approximately $900 million. Synology has decided to whitelist drives in their NASes and prompt warning messages to users when Synology devices are booted and don't contain proper Synology-branded approved NAS drives. Researchers at Quails have uncovered privilege escalation flaws in Ubuntu's snap confine function. The flaws could allow a threat actor to gain root privileges on the target endpoint. Quails estimates that approximately 40 million users are at risk. So a few months ago, Steve and I walked through an introduction of networking, and it was fairly well received by the community. And as we've kind of stepped through uh, what is going on in the community and what questions people have, we've stumbled a few times into storage. So we've invited Linux Ninja to join us on the program. Welcome in, sir. Thanks, Noah. Yeah, thanks. Enjoy being here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time to be here. Um, and so the idea here is we want to get started with an introduction to storage. So we'll get as far as we can. And I suspect, the, 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 I was telling Steve before the show Linux Ninja that the further I dig into storage, the further the rabbit hole goes. And so I, I got a few hours deep into this and I went, that's way more than we're going to get through in one episode. So I guess we'll start with kind of an overview. And Steve, a little bit of background on you. You used to work at IMAX, so you and now you work at Red Hat. So you have a fairly well-rounded background in large files and storage. Am I right? Yeah, that's fair to say. And Linux Ninja, you—I don't know how best to put this. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw this out kind of blanketly, and then you correct me if I'm wrong. But it, you essentially main the entire infrastructure for the company that you work for. Well, not where I am now, but in the past, I've worked in data centers where I had customers with co-located equipment and different needs where we had to um, provide a uh, server and storage solution to meet the needs. So um, kind of from a technical account manager perspective of solving a problem for the customers. All right. So I want to dig in a little bit. We'll start with the basics. Storage media. This is the thing that we're going to store stuff on. So we've got a couple of options here. We've got hard disks, we've got SATA SSDs, we've got M.2 SSDs, we've got M.2 NVMEs, we've got tape uh, media. There's all these sorts of different kinds of media that we can use to, to store data. So I guess I'll ask, I'll start with Steve. Tell me a little bit about a traditional hard drive. What are the advantages to a traditional hard drive? Why are they still used? And, uh, and, and how do they work? So traditional. Let's let's start with why do we use the spinning? They're they're called spinning rust in today's parlance. Why do we use spinning rust? Um, largely because you can't beat the price per gigabyte or or now I guess it's it's uh, terabyte that we're scaling out. Because right now, what happens is if you can picture like a record. A hard disk, if you open it up, has tons of these little records in them, and it depends the number of records. We'll call they're actually called platters. The number of platters that are inside a hard disk varies depending on the technology that's being used and so on. But each one of these platters has sectors and the sectors store bits. Okay. And there's a little head. The reason why I like the the um, 
the analogy of the record player is because the record player has the little head that moves back and forth to to produce the sound and, and select the right track. Inside of a hard disk, it's the exact same thing. There are as many of these little heads as there are platters inside the hard drive, and they move back and forth to seek, um, which means they look back and forth to, to find the information as the platters spin. So the platters are constantly spinning at so many revolutions per second um, or rotations per second, and that's based on your hard disk. So we use those because we can get a, a higher amount of density into one of those disks. And so while they're slower, because it's a physical thing that is spinning and you have to wait for the for the head to actually find the correct data, they you just currently we can't beat the the density and the speed because you could argue that um, I have quite a bit of experience with with archiving large movies to tape. They can store tons of data, but they're much slower. So hard drives kind of walk that good balance between a large amount of, of density and a quick retrieval of, of the information. Linux Ninja, I'll ask you, what? tell me a little bit about solid state media. There are some people that call them flashcards for hard drives. Um, why do they use that terminology? What is an SSD and how does it differ from a traditional spinning rust, as Steve put it? Well, in the spinning rust world, you've got moving parts, and, and primarily the spinning platters and the heads, and the heads have to move. So every time you have a request that goes to the drive, you've got to send some current into the into the stepper motor to move the head to the right location. Then you have to send current to stop the stepper motor from moving, and those movements uh, build up heat, and it's wear and tear uh, on the drive. In the um, SSD world, the... Um, the actual storage medium is wholly electronic. There are no moving parts. So you're, you're simply um, selecting address lines electrically um, using the controller to read uh, bits of data or write bits of data into uh, NAND flash components. So if you're in a read or write operation on NAND flash, uh, there's no delay for having to move heads from one position to another, uh, so you have less current needing to flow, you produce uh, less heat, and you have uh, less latency because you're not having to wait for a uh, a physical arm to move to the right location. What are the downsides to using uh, flash media as opposed to a traditional hard disk? Well, um, your, your first downside, of course, if you go out to buy one, is going to be cost. Um, like Steve was saying, the, the cost per gigabyte is, um, is a lot lower on your traditional hard drive, your spinning rust. Uh, you can get you know anywhere from a, a terabyte to 20 terabytes, and I'm sure it's going to continue to go up uh, on a single drive. On your NAND flash uh, storage technology drives, the, um, the actual flash storage medium is, uh, is more expensive. But they are getting to where they're packing more and more of them onto a single device. But, you know, the the more you pack onto device, the more you drive the cost up. And the, the downside besides cost is that the uh, failure modes for these, uh, for these NAND flash devices is, um, is usually all or nothing. You know, it either works or it doesn't. Um, if you've ever gotten 
sector read errors on your spinning rust hard drives, you know there's an opportunity that, well, maybe you could recover most of the data on the drive, or you might could send it off to, you know, a recovery service if, if you know, you've just really got to get all that data back. But in the flash world, uh, the SSD drives, um, it's very typical for them to just completely die um, like say people say, you know, without warning, it's kind of like your headlight going out in your car, and then you have no access to any of the data. So it's much more imperative for you to have really good backups if you're using NAND flash as, as opposed to spinning rust drives. Steve, I'd like to add yeah. into that. Just uh, one of the things. This one's a kind of a hidden one. A lot of people think, well, I'll buy an SSD and I'll I'll put it on the shelf as like cold storage because it doesn't have any moving parts and it should be fine. SSDs actually require a certain amount of current in order to maintain the cells that are on them. This means that your backup will actually degrade over time. You can't use an SSD without plugging it in every once in a while to maintain the charge that it has, or else you basically suffer from bit rot, where hard drives don't suffer that because they're the data is written magnetically. They have a, they have different failure points, like Linux Ninja was saying, but uh, you can't take an SSD out and use it for long time long term storage. Does that apply to flash uh, flash memory sticks as well? So if you have a flash drive and let's say you set it on top of a server and say, "Here's the config backup," or I see this all the time with uh, fire alarm installers. They'll take the config for the fire alarm, put it on a flash drive, set it next to the fire alarm. Um, will those degrade over time because they're stored electronically? They will. They're just slightly more tolerant and only slightly more. So the, the storage medium itself is a bundle of um, electrons. So when you write to flash uh, storage, you're, you're forcing electrons uh, into this compartment with an insulator around it. And that insulator is just a little bit leaky. And those electrons, that charge that, that you are uh, putting in that cell, um, leaks over time. And depending on which technology the flash is using, um, the level of charge may represent um, different numbers of bits. So in uh, SLC storage, you may only represent one bit per cell, so you've got a lot more leeway. But as we get to encoding more and more levels of charge per cell, where each level represents different bit combination, um, a little bit of leakage could change the entire uh, represented data within that cell. So that also gets into differences between some of your consumer-grade flash and some of your enterprise-grade flash. When we originally started with hard drives, we were speaking hard drive language, right? And when we went to flash, the way that that data was written uh, changed. And so when we went to... Uh, in a SATA SSD, how does that differ from a, let's say, in M.2 SSD and from a M.2 MVME drive? Well, I wouldn't say it's changed all that much. Uh, the ATA command set is what we were using um, at, the, at the end of the innovation of, of spin and rust hard drives, and we carry that over into SSDs. So the hard drive 
um, if you go back in history, uh, we addressed them uh, using which head on which platter, and then which cylinder from you know from the outside to the inside, and then which track on that cylinder, and then which sector within the track. Um, we we kind of drew a map to zone in on that data, and that's kind of carried over uh, from legacy uh, into our uh, newer uh, technologies, but. As, uh, as the technology has grown and adapted, we've kind of gotten away from those direct head cylinder track addresses into a relative address of, you know, distance from, you know, the beginning of the drive. Um, LBA um, eventually came on to replace what we called cylinder head sector. So the, the ATA command set is, um, is still being used by the controller on SSD just because it's what we had and we adapted that for SSD. So there's a translation happening in the controller to translate the, um, the, the LBA addressing into how those bits are actually stored on flash. Um, as we get into the newer technologies, um, like an NVMe drive, the NVMe is really the protocol for how we're talking to the device, not so much how the device is working on board. It's attached directly to the PCI bus. Um, all that kind of goes out the window. We've thrown away all of that legacy so that on the NVMe technology, we're able to do things more efficiently and not bring over a lot of that legacy cruft. I'll tack on to that and say that... Um the NVMe protocol is a lower latency protocol, which is why you see a, a significant bump in the speed of an NVMe. I mean, there's an aspect of being plugged directly into the motherboard, but it's it's built for lower latency and lower CPU overhead than the, the ACHI, uh, sorry, AHCI, which is what the SATA and the before that the parallel disks used. So there's there's a big difference between um, how each one of them handles, for example, queuing. So the old style. Then I know this is getting real nerdy, so I'm not going to go too deep in this. But but the A AHCI um, had a single queue, and it could hold up to 32 commands in that queue. Uh, with the NVMe, it's like 65,000 in a queue with as many commands that it can hold. So it's exponentially uh, more able to handle commands. And because because of the lower latency, it's able to get through its queue faster. So there is some significant difference just in, in uh, the way that they designed the protocol. So up until now, we've talked about storage mediums that can be used in uh, for day-to-day -day operations. There's advantages and disadvantages to each one of these, but you could put any one of these in your computer, install an operating system, and use them. There is one storage medium that that won't work for, and that is, of course, tape. And I think there's probably some people out there that would be surprised to learn that tape is still very much alive and well in the enterprise. What is the tape storage medium? And what makes it different from all of the other storage mediums we've talked about so far? Do you want to go first, Linux Ninja? Well, I can talk about some legacy. I haven't worked with tape in quite a while, but I'm very versed in it. I used to be a backup operator um, going years back. But um, tape um, legacy was a multi-track um, magnetic storage medium that's linear. If you think of uh, an old cassette tape or an 8-track tape, um, if any of you remember seeing one of those, um, your tape drive would uh, start at the beginning, 
and linearly write the data off from beginning to end, um, you know, marking um, data along as it goes to make it seekable when you come back later to read it. But it didn't offer the ability to go and update things that have been written. If you wanted to uh, rewrite a tape, you pretty much had to either uh, rewrite the whole tape or you had to go to the end of what's already been written and append to it from there. Um, the advantage of tape was that it's uh, very compact. Um, it was easy to box up and take off site. Uh, it was fairly resilient to uh, temperature and humidity changes uh, up to a certain point, and it had a much higher um, storage capacity uh, as compared to cost. So if I needed to store you know, X number of gigabytes on tape, I knew exactly how much money I had to spend, and I would buy multiple tapes to do multiple backups and take them off-site and swap them out. And there are services that will come along and do that for you. Um, the the biggest downside to tape is that um, if I needed to do a restore and I only needed um, a small bit of data, I had to start at the very beginning and I had to play the whole tape through until I got to the data that I needed to restore. Um, seeking the tape um, was not a very efficient process, but the the main advantage was that I could put, um, say, a tape robot library onto the back of a server using a SCSI connector and I could set up a backup job, and that tape changer could go through a set of tapes, writing the backups to all of them, and then I could eject those the next day when I come in, take them off-site, put in a new blank set, and it became um, just a very thoughtless process. And hopefully I only need those you know, when something bad happens. The huge downside to tape was the the lack of redundancy where if I had an error reading the tape um, that data might be considered lost and that has changed um, in the newer tape technologies since the tapes actually went digital where they have a form of forward error correction to the data so as they write data to the tape um, there is some checksumming and built-in redundancy in the data stream so that if there's a physical defect uh, on the magnetic media then there's enough data around that that I could still um, calculate what was missing. Now, for, for the tapes at IMAX we use them constantly and we would actually get <clears throat> tapes from our vendors so like when you make a movie it's not one movie studio that does a thing. It's it's a whole bunch of other studios that are doing various um, various portions of the 3D effects. And so, or at least it used to be. I'm sure things have streamlined since I, I moved out of the industry. But the point of that to say is we would actually have somebody fly down like the actual handcuff on the little briefcase thing and fly something from LA to uh, to where I was working in Toronto with a tape. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you're not going to have the disruption. Like you don't have to worry about the hard drive heads getting scrambled. Um, if it, if it gets stolen, it, it's a lot more obscure for someone to like have a portable tape reader in their laptop and mm. just hoover off the movie and, and, you know, upload it somewhere. So, uh, tapes were definitely still widely used in, in the movie industry when I was working now, we're talking over 10 years ago at this point, so maybe they've moved on. But the advantage of having a robot arm that would just go and, and rotate through your tapes, like you basically have in in some of ours, you could load up 20 tapes in, in a carousel and it would just rotate around those tapes. And when one tape got out, then a robot arm would just grab that tape and insert it into wherever it goes in the backup rotation. Like 
there's this idea of grandfather, which is like, you know, you do every day, then once a week, then once a month and so on. It's that rotational strategy and there's an automated arm that would sort them for you. So there, there's still some, uh, I have yet to see that with hard drives. And so there's still some really interesting long-term storage planning that you could do with tapes. What uh, what does it look like from the, the user side software perspective? Let's say uh, somebody goes out there, they hear this and they say, hey, I need to store, I want to make a backup of three terabytes and I found that I can buy these tapes on eBay. Can you put them into a tape drive, plug it into a USB connector and will it show up in GNOME disks as a drive, albeit very slow? Or do you have to use special software and a special process to write that linear data to the tape? Have you seen floppy disks? They appear the same. Um, it's just basically like a dev device. And the reason why TAR exists is it stands for tape archive. So at least on Unix type devices, you just needed to have the dev path and write a TAR directly to the tape. Let's talk a little bit about storage interfaces. So we have a pretty good idea of what we can store stuff on. We can store them on hard disk, solid state or tape. Um, now let's talk about how we actually interface to the computer. So the, interface that probably most people are familiar with if they've put together a computer, open their computer up is the SATA interface or the serial advanced uh, technology attachment. Talk about what SATA is and how we got there from the, uh, I guess, IDE and SCSI. Uh, Linux Ninja, we'll start with okay. you. Okay. <laughs> I was waiting for Steve. Um, well, if we if we look all the way back to the to the beginning of the of the home PC, like the IBM PC, um, we were using uh, MFM um, to talk to hard drives. Uh, eventually, we went to RLL. Uh, there was SCSI. Um, so now we're at serial ATA. Uh, predecessor to that was IDE, which was parallel ATA. And the advantage to serial ATA is that since we're speaking serially. Um, we're sending uh, our, our transmissions down a, a pair of copper wires at a relatively high speed. And one of the reasons we got away from parallel ATA is because when, when you're using parallel, you have a lot more conductors in the connector. And in, uh, in electrical theory, when you're pushing uh, electrons down a wire uh, and creating a current, you're also creating uh, a sort of magnetic field around each of those conductors, and you can cause that magnetic field to interfere with the signal on adjacent wires. So we, we've kind of gotten away from that and solved the problem by going to uh, serial ATA. Same thing with USB, uh, the universal serial bus, same idea, you know, it's, it's a serialized connection. So that that kind of has has been the the direction that we've been going you know f for the last many many years now that um, we're getting away from anything parallel and going to everything serial so with the the serial ata like i said earlier we're still using the same uh relatively identical command set we were using before the the ata and Everything out there that you see at the computer store, you know, all of your hard drives and such are, are all uh, SATA now. You you don't see anything else for, for consumer-grade devices. Talk a little bit about what uh, PCIe or the Peripheral Component Internet Express interface is and how that differs from SATA. Steve? Honestly, uh, I don't have a ton of experience with the PCIe stuff um, just because it hasn't been in my wheelhouse. So I'm going to kick this one at Linux Ninja. Sure. Okay. Well, if you understand how a computer works internally, uh, 
uh, you hear this thing called a bus. And all a bus really is is like a, a super highway of multiple lanes uh, all running adjacent to each other. And that's where we go back into that parallel discussion. And we do run into those problems with the data trying to go from one conductor to the other. But in order for your CPU and your memory and your other components in your computer to communicate with each other, they all tie into this bus. And PCIe is a technology that allows us to have different things all talk in this bus um, that do different tasks. So we have memory chips that can talk to the bus. We have our CPU that can talk to the memory bus. Um, and then we have these expansion slots on the motherboard that sit on the PCIe bus. And as our motherboards have evolved, the PCIe standard has gone up in version. And as it's gone up in version, they've just added more and more lanes and they've increased the speed that the data flows across these lanes so it's now become uh, pretty obvious to us that if we want high speed data throughput that we need to attach things directly to the bus rather than going through discrete controllers uh, which is what we used to do and by attaching things directly to this high speed PCIe bus now we can move data much faster and we can take uh, the CPU out of the picture somewhat when we're wanting to say move data between storage and RAM. Um, there's a thing called DMA, direct memory access, that I have a controller that says, you know, go to storage and put those contents of, of what I'm retrieving directly into RAM, and I don't have to load down my CPU to do that. So as we kind of wind down uh, the hour, this is obviously I, I didn't expect us to get all the way through this. Like I said, this rabbit hole goes super deep. And so if we get feedback and so if you like this segment, if you're listening to this and you're saying, hey, I, I did not know that. And that is really interesting to me. Then please write into live at asknoahshow.com and tell us that you like that. And we'll, we'll try to do this again because there's a lot more of this to dig into. But I've got a couple of general questions. Um do disks lie to the computer, and if so, why is that a security concern? Yes. Well, <laughs> they I, do. I mentioned I mentioned before how um, we're no longer directly addressing uh, cylinder heads and sectors on on our current hard drives and, and storage media. So when we moved over into translating um, the actual location on the drive into uh, logical addressing, uh, we also introduced the ability to do what we call remapping. So because our storage medium is physical and physical things tend to go bad over time, um, so does uh, uh, place on the physical spinning rest hard drive uh, go bad over time. So does uh, a block of flash memory go bad. So instead of that being what we used to call uh, an entry on a, on a bad sector map or bad sector table on our old drives, now the controller will take that out of play and no longer um, command it to read or write data. And drives now have extra data um, that they aren't originally assigned that is a, available to be swapped out. So because all of our storage mediums have uh, a technology called um, error correction, ECC, um, they notice when they read data from a location that they're having to do corrections to it in order to make the data whole again. And when they see that that, um, that correction is uh, crossing a threshold, they'll declare that area of storage is bad they will swap out a spare uh, that hasn't been used before, and then they'll start using that in its place. And what that means is that that 
data that sits on that bad block or on that bad sector is no longer being addressed. So if I send a command to the drive that says erase uh, that block, well, the old bad block doesn't get erased. The new one that replaced it does. And if you have the proper forensic tools, you can go into these drives and you can read off the data that sits in those areas that have been swapped out. And it could potentially contain secret information that you thought when you erased the drive was erased, but because it's been swapped out as a bad block or a bad sector, it's still sitting there and, and won't ever get erased. Steve, any thoughts or follow-up? Yeah, there's just a little bit. Um, so spot on, I would say the other attack that's, that is less likely but is absolutely nation-state possible is that you actually have the data being mirrored to a section of the drive that you didn't know was there. So like, like Linux Ninja said, every drive has a certain capacity, but then they have um, a certain percentage of cells that actually help to increase the longevity that, that sit idle. But you could, in theory, ship drives that have, uh, let's say, altered firmware on them where they were writing to sectors that didn't exist and or you know the operating system doesn't know that they exist so like delete commands wouldn't work or things of that nature which is why you can't actually securely erase well there's a bunch of reasons why you can't securely erase an ssd there's something called wear leveling um, which is similar to what linux ninja was talking about where it's it's trying to make sure that all of the cells get written to or read from approximately the same number of times. And so um, secure erase doesn't can't really deal with that because the hard drive is actually misrepresenting itself to the operating system. So the only real way to actually handle that security is by encrypting your drives and then deleting the encryption key when you're done. Steve and Linux Ninja, thank you both for taking the time to uh, to go through this. I really appreciated it. I learned a lot. If you learned a lot, then write in to live at asknoahshow.com. Let us know, and we'll definitely do a part two. I would be excited to do that. Hey, a couple announcements before we go. Our next community night will be March 3rd at 7 p.m. We've done this once. It was a fantastic time, a geek hangout. We answered a ton of questions from the community, hung out, learned a bunch of stuff. Join us for that. Also, the open tech will save us. We'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.com. We're back next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com. Asknoahshow.com.